Well, good morning. It has already been a great day to be here in the house of the Lord. It has been great to see our children, to see so many conversations, laughter. Um, It is good to see many faces again with us. And also for those who are still watching, uh, who will be seeing this later in the week, again, we do not live stream our services. Um, We record them and post them later for folks who are still uh, at home. And so we pray by God's grace that the rest of our faith family will join us again at some point as we continue to wait on what happens next with our country and with the pandemic. But either way, we are here. We are gathered together today. It is a, obviously an exciting day here in the life of our church. I want to take a moment to thank our faith family this morning for uh, just affirming uh, Jonathan's call as a deacon. I am looking forward to having him in the room with our deacons uh, to see how the Lord is going to continue to use him in service. And as I think about that and I think about the service of our deacons, uh, it really just uh, brings me great joy as I think about our text today from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. So it's just it's just a blessing to know on a day that our church is affirming a, a new deacon, our text is actually going to speak of biblical church leadership. Now, my hope is that as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 today, that we will begin to see biblical church leadership as necessary for the church to display the glory of God, both in worship and also in witness. Now again, I recognize that we are hitting yet another passage on church leadership, and there may be many in the room who may be tempted to ask or have been attempted uh, to look at this passage today in 1 Timothy 3 and say, we've already heard this already. We've already seen this list of qualifications. Paul has already covered this with Titus, and so why is it necessary again to go over in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Isn't it possible to move on to perhaps something that may be a little more interesting there may be some of us who may even ask the question uh, like this, what does church leadership even have to do with me? Or what does church leadership have to do with my family? Or even my time is spent in worship or even my life itself? Well, to answer your question simply, I would want you to know that church leadership affects every follower of Jesus Christ. So as believers, when we think upon church leadership, I imagine that many of us have been encouraged greatly by church leadership, whether it's been personal encouragement or encouragement in our faith and in our walk. I'm quite confident that if we paused for a moment, I asked each of you to think of a particular church leader in your life who has had some sort of influence or impact over your life. I would imagine that if we went around the room, many of you could name Name a time or perhaps even name a person who has had great influence over your life. In fact, when I think upon the church leaders that have spoken into my life, I think of men like Algernon Tennyson, who uh, was a man who worked as a custodian at a church and yet was one of the greatest evangelists I had the opportunity to ever know. It was Algernon who shared John 3.16 in a way to me that I had never heard before and by God's grace through his spirit led me to faith in Christ. 
It was later in high school, my junior and senior years, when I began to wrestle with a call to ministry that God brought by his sovereign grace a man by the name of Butch Rumble into my life. Now, Butch was an elementary school PE coach and at the same time was planning a church that would later become known as Rockdale Community Church. And for the last two years of high school, Butch Rumble would have a profound impact over my life, over my discipleship, and just his words of encouragement and affirmation as I moved on into college days would just still resound greatly today. As I moved into college, I think of uh, leaders like Tom Lessel and Stan Annandale. I think of, as I moved from there into getting a master's degree, men like Roy Fish and Richard Ross and the great men and leaders who have spoken into my life and lived out their faith well. In every aspect of my life, and I'm sure we can say the same thing about our lives collectively, we can probably think of a leader who has encouraged us or influenced us in some mighty way. And yet here's the sad truth for the church today. I would imagine that there are many of us out there whom have been hurt by church leadership. In fact, I imagine that there's many of us that we may know who are not with us that have been hurt so much so that it has pushed them away from the church and possibly even away from Christianity. You see, here's the reality. When you have church leaders who are casual about God, when they are casual about his word and his holiness, and they are casual and flippant about the mission and the ministry of the local church and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is then that the church, or better yet, the faith family, will begin to fall short in those same areas as well. However, churches that have biblical leaders... Churches that have leaders who love the Lord, who are passionate about biblical truths, who are passionate about the word of God, who are passionate about evangelism and missions and service according to the word. It's in those churches that you will begin to see churches and bodies of believers that are strengthened by their leadership and their biblical truth and therefore themselves will become passionate about seeing souls from around the world transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is done through the passion and the local witness of the local church. So as believers today, let's look for a moment at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and let us see Paul's words and ultimately see again the qualifications of biblical church leadership. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be reading this text in its entirety. And once you have found your place and you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now again, these are Paul's words to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his, house, his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity now that we have to worship you through the study of your word. Father, we ask that in these next few moments that you would give us clarity of ear, clarity of heart, and clarity of mind. And we pray now that as we continue to look to your truth, that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for this time. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to set the scene for you if it's all right. You see, the Bible actually identifies two leadership roles within the church. We see the role of the elder and also the role of deacons. Now, when we look to the word, we see clear, non-negotiable truths that guide our understanding of church leadership. Now, at the same time, in order to be fair, the Bible isn't as clear on the particular practices of these roles. So it is possible for biblical churches to look different when it comes to leadership. You see, this is not always a matter of right and wrong or one church does it better than others when it comes to church leadership. So before we jump into our text today for our conversations this morning, let's establish some truths that we can already agree on when we consider God's design for the local church. Truth number one is this, church leadership is designed by God. In other words, church leadership is not man-made. So as we consider church leadership, we must avoid imposing our own leadership structures upon the church, especially when that structure does not align with the very word of God. 
You see, church leadership was given to us by God according to his word for the purpose of displaying his glory. You see, the glory of Christ is to be on display through his bride, which is the local church. So those who lead the church are to be a visible display of his glory and therefore lead the church in such a way that the faithful within the church begin to reflect his glory as well. Our second truth that I believe we can all agree on is this. Church leadership is designed to be dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, nothing Paul tells us in our passage today is even remotely possible without the gospel of Jesus Christ. The qualifications, the roles, and the responsibilities of church leadership are only possible as a result of Jesus Christ living in and working through his people. And so Jesus Christ, since he is our authority, since he is the one who is our leader, we are only qualified to lead as he is living and working within us. So now that we've established these two truths, let's go ahead and look at our text and begin to see the qualifications of biblical church leadership. Now we'll look to verses one through seven and we're going to see what can be called the qualifications of elders. Now again, if you've been with us already as we've walked through this series on letters from the pastor, you will already know that back in Titus, we walked definitively through each one of these particular uh, characteristics and qualifications that we see. So for today's purpose, what I want to do is take a step back and take a general approach to what it means to be qualified as an elder and also what it means to be qualified as a deacon. Now, we know already from Paul that he is going to begin with the elders. We also know that the word elder itself is actually a very common term that is used throughout the Bible. You see, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 29, elders were used to describe the leadership that assisted Moses. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 3, elders were used as a reference to the spiritual leaders that lived within the Jewish community. Now, when you get to our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it describes a unique leadership role within the church. In fact, what we can already know is this. Nearly every church that we know of or have in the New Testament is specifically said to have elders. Now we see through the Bible that there are actually two words that are also used to describe the role of an elder. It's the word pastor and overseer. You see, whether you see the word pastor or overseer or elder, depending on your translation, what we can know is each of these words are interchangeable and they actually refer to the same position of leadership within the church. So whether, again, it's pastor or elder or overseer, each of these words refer to the same position. Now, what we also know is that elder or the word elder itself almost occurs in the plural form in the New Testament. In fact, in the church, beginning in the New Testament, we see that there are multiple 
elders. So as we look through scriptures, and as we look particularly through the New Testament, we can clearly see that the church is not a dictatorship, nor is the church meant to be a democracy. You see, Jesus Christ entrusts elders to lead the church. So again, as we look to elders in the Bible, we see that elders are called to lead under the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, elders do not have the final authority. That role belongs to Christ and Christ alone. We see this in Matthew chapter 18. We see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We see that elders have been given to the church to guide us and to lead as servants of Jesus Christ and to lead the church. Men who aspire to become elders do not campaign in order to get elected as elders. Rather, they realize that they are appointed by the Spirit of God and prayed over and affirmed by the church. You see, elders belong to the church. And so as elders, these men should not approach leadership lightly. Rather, they recognize that Jesus Christ is in total control, that it is Jesus who has all power. And as they lead, they lead as ones who will be held accountable to God. We also see that elders are called to care for the body of Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 20 and again in 1 Peter chapter 5. You see, elders were there called upon to guard and to protect the flock, or better yet, to shepherd the flock. It was elders who were called upon to be on guard against false teachings and false doctrines. Elders were the ones who were given the God-given responsibility to not only guard their own lives and guard the lives of their family, but also to guard the lives of the members within their church. You see, elders are men who are called to the front line of what can best be described as spiritual warfare. From there, we see that elders are called to teach the word of God. You see, leadership itself is tied to the word and it is to be used to build up the church. So as elders, these men not only know the word, they obey the word. They teach the word and yes, they follow the word. In fact, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1, in Paul's words, elders should be able to say the same, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, elders study the word of God. They memorize the word of God. They meditate upon the word of God. They know what it is that they believe and they know why they believe it. They know the scriptures when theological issues arise and they can speak to them. Elders are men equipped with the word when needed in order to address hard questions that may come up in the church. It is elders who are supposed to be the men who know what the word says on practical issues and on numerous social issues that a church may face. You see, elders can clearly and articulately communicate the word of God. Now again, as we come back to 1 Timothy chapter three, we see that elders are to model the very character of Christ. 
And so what Paul gives us here in 1 Timothy 3 is character qualifications of an elder. But before we get into them, let's notice what is not on the list. Notice Paul does not mention age. Notice that Paul does not mention business success as defined by the world. Notice that Paul also says nothing of likability. You see, we can also say in Paul's own words, as we've already seen in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we also notice that women, again, are not mentioned with the role of elder. You see, as a husband leads his home, so too are elders to provide leadership within the church. So as we look at this list, we see that elders as leaders in the church are to be models within the church. In other words, when we see our elders, we should look to them and say, that is a man that I want to follow. That is a man that I want to be like. Now again, instead of defining each one of these qualities and characteristics as we have already done with Titus, let's look at these qualifications and let's see what it is that we should be looking for and what it is that we should be praying for and even asking of our elders. We'll see first that we should look to their personal life and ask the following questions. Is he a man who is self-controlled? Is he wise? Is he peaceable and gentle? Is he a sacrificial giver, humble and patient? Is he a man who is honest and disciplined? We see from Paul's list that we should also be looking to their family life as well and asking the following questions. Not only is he an elder in the church, but when we look to this man, can we see that he is an elder in his own home? If he is single, is he self-controlled? If he's married, is he completely committed to his wife? And if he has children, do they honor him? We then see that we should look to the elder's social life as well. Is he a man who is kind? Is he hospitable? Is he a man who can be called a friend to strangers or does he show favoritism? Does he have a blameless reputation? Not perfect, but above reproach. We then should be able to look to this man's spiritual life and ask the following questions. Again, according to Paul in our text, does he make disciples? Is he a man who loves the word of God? Is he a man of prayer? Is he holy and is he gracious? You see, here's the reality when we look at Paul's list of the qualifications of elders. No one will fulfill these qualifications perfectly. However, for the elder... He should strive to live in this way and therefore live by example and live a life worth imitating. You see, elders, their lives are to reflect the very life of Jesus Christ. As Christians, when we look to this list of qualifications for elders, this is how we should be praying for our leaders within the church. This is how we should be praying for our elders. 
In fact, I would take it a step further. Men in the room, when you look upon these qualifications and you see these questions, this is the type of man that we should be, not only for the church, but also for our own families. So we have to ask, who in our church meets these qualifications? When we look over the qualifications of an elder, is there anyone in our church who comes to mind? Better yet, men, do we see these qualifications within our lives? Paul moves from there in verses 8 through 13, and he begins to discuss the qualifications of deacons. Now, here's the reality. These requirements of deacons are not as concise and as clear as that of the elder. In fact, if you go back to the book of Acts, we rarely see deacons mentioned at all. In fact, that's probably why we see a variety of opinions on the role of deacons within the church today. Now, when you look at the word deacon itself, we can see that the word deacon or the word group used for deacon is actually mentioned and used more than 100 times in the New Testament. Normally, it refers to some form of ministry or service. So what we can clearly gather from being a deacon is we see that serving is a responsibility for the deacon. We also know that serving is also a responsibility for all members of the church. Now, when you look to Acts chapter 6, Acts 6 gives us a glimpse of deacons leading out in service by dealing with complaints between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And so here is a clear picture of deacons leading the church in service. So when you look at elders and you look at deacons, this is what we can know according to Acts chapter 6. Elders are responsible for prayer and they are responsible for the ministry of the word of God within the church. Deacons are responsible to serve and they are responsible to fight for unity within the church. Now I understand that many of our churches have a traditional view of deacons. And we have a traditional view of deacons as leaders or as a board within the church. And so what I'm going to ask you to do for the next few moments is to simply lay aside your preconceived notions of what a deacon is and what a deacon is not. And let's just talk for a moment about biblical deacons. You see, I have to do this because here's the reality. I've seen it firsthand, whether as an associate pastor of another church or as a person coming in to consult with a church. In many of the cases, when I walked into a church and I began to see issues within that church, what I would often find was a group of individuals who called themselves deacons who would meet together. They would then sit in front of the church and then they would speak openly and poorly about their pastor and their staff. In fact, in these very same rooms where I had opportunities to consult other churches, they would, I would often find that deacons would bring issues to the senior pastor and say this of him. You need to fix this or else. Now, to be clear, I would always ask what the or else was. Not to be offensive because I was curious. That's kind of an open-ended question. Some, my, my house, some people say, fix this or else you don't eat supper. Okay, that's a little different. I can handle that problem. 
So when asked, the response I would get from these particular deacons was, fix this or else you're gone. I want to share with you that this is a very unbiblical view of deacons within the church. Deacons are not called, nor do they have the biblical mandate to be a board of directors for the church. Rather, here's what we see deacons doing. We see that deacons meet needs according to the word of God. In fact, if we go back and look again at Acts chapter six, verses one through seven, we see again deacons' ministries arise from specific and particular circumstances. So as the church grew in Acts, someone was needed in order to lead in the distribution of aid. So here was a specific need that necessitated the role of these leading servants. We also see that deacons are accountable for specific commands. In other words, deacons are called upon to fulfill specific roles based upon scriptural mandates. You see, it is deacons who are to care for widows. It is deacons who are called upon to lead committees and to lead teams within the church. And yes, in modern first world situations like the one we are living in, deacons are the ones who are called to even assist in the parking lot so that the church can be enabled to obey the biblical command to meet together. We then see that deacons are to support the ministry of the word of God. Again, looking back at Acts chapter 6, deacons freed up the apostles to be able to pray and to be able to preach the word. And so when it comes to the modern church, deacons now serve the elders so that the elders can lead in the ministry of the word. And yet, sadly, modern churches have allowed deacons to assume the role of being supervisors of the staff of the local church. And again, I want to say to you today, that is not biblical. Rather, deacons are called upon to serve as supporters and encouragers of the elders in the ministry of the word of God. You see, when it comes to service, deacons organize members to make sure the work is being done so that everyone in the church is fulfilling their role of service. And it is the deacons who are called upon to set that example. We then see that deacons are called to unify the church around the word of God. Again, Acts chapter 6. When members of the church were arguing and it was leading to disunity in the church, notice it was deacons who were appointed to calm the tension and to increase unity within the church. Now this clearly runs directly counter to what is normally seen within the modern church when it would be deacons who would enable disunity. It was deacons who listened to gossip and it was deacons who would affirm complaining. But when we look to scriptures, it is deacons who should be the ones who labor to promote unity within the church. In other words, if I can give you a visual example, deacons are to act as shock absorbers within the church. 
Now again, coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, here we see this list of qualifications. Again, we've covered these these qualifications in Titus. You can go back and listen to that sermon. So again, let's just talk generally about the qualifications. Now before we look at the list, we can see that deacons should have a mission mindset. The church itself needs deacons who embrace the mission of the church, the mission that God has given them, and then unite the faith family to the cause and the mission of the local church. Deacons cannot be engrossed in power struggles. Deacons cannot be embattled in turf wars or lobbying for their own personal causes. Rather, they see the mission of the church and they begin working to help others understand that very mission. Now again, we are seeing divides in the local church. We are seeing splits in the local church. And I wish I could tell you that studies show us that most of those splits happen because the congregation is divided, but that is just not true. Most of the splits we see in the church start when elders and deacons have blurred the lines of their specific roles. And these leaders begin to seek personal gain. You see, here's the reality. Satan would love nothing more than to create disunity within the church. So deacons, again, they are the ones who come along to absorb the shock from the attacks. They absorb the shock from the complaints. And then it is the deacons who work alongside with the elders in order to find solutions. Now, here's the reality. I'm not saying that you shouldn't complain. Please don't hear that. I'm not saying that if you have a grief or a frustration, you should simply just dismiss it because none of us care. You're not hearing that either. Please don't say that. You see, there will be valid complaints. There will be valid questions. There will be real needs that will arise within the church. And when those moments come, the deacons should rise to the occasion to meet those needs so that the mission of the church can, to, can continue to press forward and the body of believers can remain unified. Now, I want you to hear me on this because I'm gonna say this as clear as I can make it. If there is someone who is creating disunity within the church, if there is someone who is spreading slander about its leaders or spreading gossip or they are pulling people away from the church based on false information and they begin pulling people away from the mission of God through the local church, then I want you to hear me today. That person is not qualified to be a deacon. There is no place for that in the church. You see, deacons like elders are called to have Christ-like character. Now, we may not see all that the deacons do in the word. We may not even see all that the deacons do within the church. But what we do see is that the qualifications are still clear. Deacons are to exemplify the very character of Christ. And so as we look again at our passage here, we have to ask ourselves the following questions about these qualifications.
qualifications based upon the qualifications. When it comes to a deacon, is this person honorable? Are they genuine? Is this deacon self-controlled and are they a sacrificial giver? Again, from Paul's own words, is the deacon devoted to the word of God and faithful? Again, not perfect, but morally pure. Does the deacon honor Christ not only in the church, but also within the home? Now, it's at this point that we get to verse 11, and we come to our biggest question that most churches are left answering, and that is this, can a woman serve as a deacon? Now again, I have asked you to lay aside preconceived notions and hear me out on this. The answer to that question is as follows, it depends upon the individual church. Vague answer, right? I'd have made a great politician. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, some would argue at this point that obviously when you look to verse 11, this issue is clear and solidified because it says in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so at this point, many would argue, as you can see, both deacons and their wives have to display the very character of Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying that at this point we are succumbing to the pressures from our culture. But I'm also not going to sit here and say that we should also succumb to what has been the traditional history of the local church. You see, this is not simply a conservative versus liberal issue within the church. And here's what I mean by that. Based upon the church's role of a deacon, I do believe it is possible for women to be deacons. And I've got four reasons as to why, according to this passage in verse 11. First of all, if you look to verse 11, you see this word there. First of all, the word there does not appear in the Greek. The word here is actually implied, but it's certainly not explicit. That's why many of us in our translations, when you look to your footnotes, you will actually see a change in the translation where it says wives or women likewise. Now, does this mean there's a fallacy in scripture? No. The pronoun was put there in order to create a smooth transition in the language. But again, when you go back to the original language, you will see the pronoun there does not exist. The second reason I want to give you today is this. I want you to ask the following question. When you look at verses 1 through 7, and then you look again at verses 8 through 13, why would Paul talk about deacons' wives but never once mention the wife of an elder? You see, elders' qualifications are clearer, they're more particular, they are, they are more strict. So why would Paul, who again, Paul is intentional with his words, give an extra qualification to a servant office? When you look through all of Paul's writings, this does not match with Paul's teaching. Thirdly, I would encourage you to look at the overall context of the passage 
Clearly we see that Paul was not talking about the wives of deacons here. How do we know this? Because again, when you look to verse 11, you see the word likewise, which does exist. Now the word likewise is actually a transition word, and it's actually the same transition word that Paul uses when he goes from speaking of elders to then speaking of deacons in verse 8. So when we read this passage in its context and we look particularly at the subjects of the passage, it starts first with elders, likewise deacons, likewise deaconesses. You see, it would not make sense to talk about elders, then deacons, then deacon wives with no mention of the wife of an elder. My fourth reason I want to give you is this. How do you explain Phoebe in Romans chapter 16? You see, when you go to Romans 16, we see Phoebe is referred to by Paul as a servant of the church. Now here again, Paul being intentional with his words and the word that he uses here actually comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. So when you look to Paul's writings, we can clearly see a picture of women playing an integral role in the mission of the church. That's why Paul mentions these particular women over 17 times within his writings. I could give you more reasons beyond that, but we'll stop there. But another one I would encourage you to look at is compare what was said about deacons and then what is said about wives. The words here are identical. So again, why would Paul need to repeat himself for deacons and yet not do so with elders? You see, the issue here is not whether women can be leaders, but it's how the Bible describes their role within the context of the local church. So again, if we're looking at the context of the local church according to the word of God, we see that biblical deacons meet needs according to the word of God. They support the ministry of the word of God. They unify the body around the word of God and they are under the authority of the elders according to the word of God. So if that is the way a church is living and leading, then you will clearly see that there is no biblical evidence whatsoever that these responsibilities should only be separated, designed, and include men alone. However, and here I'm going to play politician. Here's my footnote. There are many churches in our society today, there are many churches many sister, sister churches that we have around us that do not have elders. There are many churches that have now, because they do not have elders, they now have deacons that now take on a significant leadership role within the church that has been reserved for elders. What I would argue is if that is the case for that local church, then women should not serve as deacons. So when considering who can be a deacon, let's be biblical about the roles. Let's be biblical about the roles of the elder. Let's look biblically at the roles of the deacon. And yet at the same time, let's take a look at their 
responsibilities within the church. And again, if the deacon itself, the role of the deacon within the church is elevated or has an elevated status within the church, then let's respect the decision for men to lead in that role. Again, this is not a conservative versus liberal issue. This is about what is biblical. And yet at the same time, recognizing that Paul is speaking to qualifications of the role. In other words, this should not be an issue worth splitting a church over. I'm going to say it now. If you were upset about what was just said, you were upset over something that I believe our deacons would agree is a tertiary issue in the church. There are more important things that we should be upset about within the church. In other words, this is not an issue worth splitting a church over. But it is worth our consideration. It is worth prayer. And it is worth fighting for unity. In fact, that's why I'm convinced that we get into verses 14 through 16 and notice what Paul does after really hammering down on the leaders and the qualifications of the leaders. Notice what he does in verses 14 through 16. He brings us back to the significance of the church. Now, what Paul does is he wants to remind uh, Timothy and he wants to remind the church of their purpose, but then ultimately remind them of the supremacy of Christ. So what Paul does here is he reveals that we are, are now the very expression of God's family. In other words, we are his family, we are his children, and according to verse 15, since we are in the household of God, as children of God, we now operate under the authority of God. We then go on to see that the church itself is the church of the living God. Now notice again, here is Paul encouraging the believers. He reminds them that we are the dwelling place of God. In other words, the church, the gathered body of believers, that is the place where God lives and God dwells. In other words, when we come to worship, we are in his house. When we come to worship, we are worshiping in his presence. When we come to study the word, we come listening to his word. And when we come to worship, we come partaking of the elements at his table. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you that's that last one is something I am very encouraged about because I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself or not, but I am looking forward already to next Sunday because after much prayer and consideration, we are going to do our best to find a way to bring communion back to close out our services beginning next Sunday. And that is something that I for one, am looking forward to, and I would encourage you to be with us as a faith family as we worship together through the partaking of the elements. But Paul's not done there. He goes to verse 15, and he tells us that we are now a, a pillar and a, and a buttress of truth. In other words, Paul is telling us not only about worship, but now he's telling us that we as believers are guardians of the word of God. In other words, we hold the word firm. We hold the word high. We magnify the word. We amplify the word. And we are the ones who are called to spread the word of God all over the world. 
So when you look at verses 14 and 15, we see our significance as a church. In other words, as a church, whether you're an elder, a deacon, or you're a member of the church, we all have a place, and according to God's word, we have a purpose. We then get into verse 16, and we see that we are reminded now of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And here Paul tells us is the mystery of godliness, which occurs when God-centeredness permeates everything that we do as a church. You see, all that we do, all of our meetings, all of our prayers, all of our singing, all of our reading of scripture, all of our studying of the word, all of our taking of the elements or partaking of the elements, all of our service, it all has to do with Jesus Christ and nothing else. You see, it was Christ who came in the flesh. It was Christ who was justified by the Spirit. According to verse 16, he was praised by the angels and proclaimed amongst the people. It is Jesus Christ who is Savior to all of the world. And it is Jesus, according to Paul, who is the King of the universe. Now, what does verse 16 mean for us today? You see, Jesus Christ... The Son of God incarnate, verified by the Spirit, raised from the dead, praised among the angels, proclaimed across the earth, believed on as Savior, and crowned as King of the universe, that Jesus now lives within us. You see, as believers, we now have power. As believers, we now have strength. As believers, we now have grace because Jesus Christ dwells within us. Hear Paul's words of encouragement here. Maybe you need to ask these questions. Are you struggling? Are you frustrated by the week that you've had? Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling bruised? Are you feeling battered and beat down because of everything we're hearing in the media? Are you feeling broken because you just don't understand the pandemic? Are you afraid because we are living in uncertain times and who knows what tomorrow holds? Well, here's what Paul is saying to us in verse 16. He says that Christ is in you. You see, Jesus is life. Jesus is strength and he is hope. And because it is Jesus Christ who lives in us, we now have nothing to fear. Let me give you a real world example. It doesn't matter what happens on November 4th because Jesus Christ is still on his throne. He is still the savior of the world. Today and tomorrow, he will continue to be the savior on November 3rd, on November 4th, and on November 5th. Until the day of his return and beyond, he is savior. And yes, he alone is sovereign over all things. What do we have to fear? Give you another real world example. If you turn on the news like I did this morning because you were tired of watching sports, it's not funny, it was not a good day for me. It's the only time I ever turn on the news. In fact, the only way my day gets redeemed today is if the Atlanta Braves win and the Falcons lose. 
That's a good day. Some of you will get that later when you figure out you lose more, you get higher up in the draft. You get where I'm going with that? Anyway. I turned on the news this morning. You know what the first thing I heard on the news was? Nothing to do with the weather, which, by the way, I love our weather. Nothing to do with life, anything happening locally in Tampa and Brandon. It was about COVID. It was about the pandemic. COVID cases are on the rise. So here we are again, creating fear. Can I just share something with you for a moment? And I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you my opinion on, on masks. I'm not going to tell you my opinion on what restaurants should and should not do. I just want restaurants to continue making good food so I can continue to go to them. That's really all I ask, especially my favorite ones. What I can tell you is this. Whether the COVID numbers go up or down, whether they're right or not, all that's irrelevant. Because God is sovereign even over COVID. This COVID pandemic will go on as long as the Lord allows it. Our president's not going to fix that. Dr. Fossey is not going to fix that. It'll go as long as God allows. It will end when God says so. And so as a believer in Christ, I trust my God. I will not live in fear. Whether it's an election or a pandemic, God is still sovereign over all. And that is what Paul is pointing us to in verses 14 through 16. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ should ultimately change the way that we live. The very word of God should impact the way we serve. It should impact the way we worship and the way we follow our leadership within the church. And so as Christ followers, as we've already seen this morning, we should prayerfully appoint and affirm biblical church leaders. And when we do, we should hold them in high regard. We should honor them as leaders who are now using their gifts in order to build up the church. You see, as a faith family, as members, we are called to serve the local church. We are called to faithfully follow leadership and to honor and uphold the word of God to lead us and guide us. And again, the ultimate purpose is so that we can see the multiplication of the gospel of Jesus Christ through our communities and among the nations. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would now pray for God to keep us close to his word. My prayer for us is that this morning we would begin praying for biblical church leadership. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity we've had to walk through your word. Lord, we praise you for your truth. We praise you for the opportunity we have to worship you. 
Father, we look to you knowing that you are sovereign over all things. You will do all that you please. And so, Father, we praise you for your plan, whether we understand it or not. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in your word. And God, I pray that as believers, we would allow this truth to lead us, guide us, mold us, and shape us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you. We're not here today by accident. We're here because you allowed it. We're here because you called us. And so, Father, I pray that it would be our heart's desire to make much of your name. Father, help us to be a church that is faithful to your word, but that boldly loves others and shares the truth of who you are with those whom we may come in contact with. God, we thank you for the calling that you've placed upon each one of us. Now, Father, I pray that we would faithfully live out that call in the days that you have given us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.